Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hello, friends, and welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> the timing was flawless. That was beautiful. It's, I, I opened my mouth and I said that, and then no more words. There were no more words. <laughs> oh, man. What a great morning. You guys, we met, we met at an actual character. Well, not that the bishop isn't a real character, but as we discussed, he's not a real character. No. Right? Well, Emily was just saying before we started that she was kicking herself because we actually meet one of our our main characters about 54 pages in, right? But I've never made it this far myself. I I always quit. Because you're too bored by the bishop? Well, yes. I just didn't understand the significance of the Monseigneur Bienvenue guy, and I just kept quitting. And now I feel silly about that. I just, (laughs) I know that I have made it farther I just am really confused about myself in the past because I remember the Petit Gervais section and for some reason I didn't know that I was also reading about Jean Valjean. I don't know what was going on the first time I tried to read this book. You know, I actually... Oh, go ahead. I have a guess. Well, I was just going to say, I know that I tried to read it the summer after I got married and I think that my brain just must have been complete mush. (laughs) I also think that reading in the context that, that we all are is unique. We're reading with an eye to talking about it with someone. And so there's an engagement. You're you're participating in a conversation as we're reading right now in a way that when I was reading by myself and no one was ever going to ask me about this, I I mean, I wasn't paying. I hate to admit I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that is revelatory. So we met a real person by which, of course, we mean Jean Valjean. The, the, the principal character has entered the scene finally. Yeah, dude. And we don't necessarily mean to say the bishop is not a real person, but as we discussed last week, he's not a real person, right? He's a he's a, an exaggerated symbol of goodness and charity that, that provides contrast for the terrible conditions of the working poor, mm-hmm. et cetera. I don't know. I think that I'm, I just think that this is a romantic work. And I'm starting to see it all over the place. And I think that maybe all of our characters are going to partake of that caricaturization, Hmm. like as opposed to characterization. I mean, with C.A. caricature, right? Yeah. yeah. Like a overdrawing. Yeah, I have I have um, on page 101, but I think it's significant everywhere in our version on page 101. I have written at the top. His descriptions are explicit rather than subtle. They're well drawn and beautiful, but he goes, he goes all the way explaining what he means by the significance of each symbol, which I think here at the outset feels a little laborious, but I think that maybe, well, maybe, but it also, I think that is part of the romantic genre and you have to give your heart to it and it's going to be beautiful and it's going to grow on you over the course of this long novel. But right now, like coming to it fresh, not having read a, a romantic work in a while, it does feel a little bit to me like these are broad strokes and caricatures rather than characters. And that he's not trusting me as a reader to to imply some things. I don't know. I, I found that equal parts lovely and a little bit um, ponderous this time. What do you guys mm. think? Yeah, I kind of agree with you. I mean, there's a moment in there's a moment in our section where Jean Valjean has taken the silver and run away, mm-hmm. and Madame Magloire comes out of the house to the bishop, frantic because the basket containing the silver is gone. Which of course means she's frantic because the silver is gone. Right. And she says, "Where's the basket? Where's the basket?" And he goes, "Oh, here it is," and hands her the empty basket, which has been tossed in the garden. <laughs> it's almost like he's a ninth grader that or an eighth grader that is sort of pig-headedly refusing to get the point, even though he knows what the point is, right? And it's supposed to be this this radical selflessness, like the silver really truly doesn't matter to him down in his guts. 
but all we normal humans reading the work look at it and go, oh, okay. Are you you're trying to be obtuse? Thing, don't you think? Yeah. Well, and I I want to hasten to say that I don't mean it in a in a negative sense only that it that it is a little bit on the nose, if you will. But like, right. there's that scene where. Um, Jean Valjean, and I hope we talk about this thematically because it's lovely, but where he's standing over the sleeping curé or the sleeping Monseigneur. And um, yeah. and Hugo says something like, there are moments when the natural world uh, forces us to see something true. Mm-hmm. And the clouds broke and the moonlight shafted down Shaft onto Monseigneur's <laughs> face. And you have the villain right. and you have the good guy and the good guy is literally glowing from without and from within. And this means holiness, you know, and right. I just, <laughs> I understand, I do. But also, Mm -hmm. it was explicit, you know, like he went ahead and told us every part that should be Mm -hmm. significant, made the natural word serve his ends, but then also wanted to explain how it was doing that rather than like in a Shakespeare play. There's not explanation of the natural world uh, bearing up the thematic significance. It is. And there's note of what's happening in the natural world, but there's not also authorial interpretation on top of it. Does that make sense? Right. There's a little bit of a show don't tell kind of scenario. But Emily, it sounds to me like this really plays nicely with your comment about caricatures, because I think he's doing that in the way he sets up his characters, too. Right. That he's he's. um, Oh, there's a word that eludes me. He is. So when you're when you're playing a a sport, you can telegraph your next move. Right. There Mm. there are habits of of body that let your opponent know what you're about to do and respond to it ahead of time. And I think that he's doing that as an author. Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I see that. I see that for sure. It doesn't bother me though. I mean, there were moments in, in our reading se- selection for today that I thought were really moving. Oh and yeah. And it, he isn't, there's a difference I think between an author doing that when his project is also kind of pat and that his message is a little trite this doesn't feel like that at well, all. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm thinking is that there's Hemingway mm-hmm. who is very sparse. Um, that would probably be the opposite end of the literary spectrum. Oh, yeah, I think so. Who <laughs> tells us directly what he's going to say, but um, never explains. And so you're left to imply. But this is like a frosted cake where it's very sugary and very sweet, but there's layers. Like mm-hmm. it supports its own richness because yes, he's telling us the meaning, but actually there's also underneath of that, there's a whole bunch of threads mm-hmm. of things going on that he isn't telling us explicitly that makes it all the richer. Well, I'm excited to to tease those out a little bit. I definitely caught, I mean, he's doing a lot of work. He's doing tons of allusions and using all kinds of literary devices. And it's, it's a spectacular work of art. I just um, need to get back into the swing of reading a romantic, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a stylistic departure for sure. So let's, let's dive into Jean Valjean's actual story. And this is the part, I mean, I was a little disappointed. Annoyed is the wrong word because I love his style. I'm Mm. actually... (laughs) really having fun reading this book. Oh yeah. But um but it was sad to me how brief a number of pages the actual story part about the character that we're supposed to care about was in contrast to the descriptions of the bishops in his, in his everyday mm. life. I mean, we got what felt like a a lot about every single detail of the bishop. And then Jean Valjean shows up and his entire life story is told to us and the situation with the silver happens and he's brought to the brink of himself morally and he sees the face of God and all of that happens in the space of like 15 pages. <laughs> At least it feels that way. And maybe I just, it just felt that way because, you know, there was plot finally. But, um, but it seems like, it seems like he didn't spend as much time on that as I wish he would have. Your thoughts? The way that he introduces Jean Valjean to us, I think is really significant. Whereas with the bishop, we were given intimations of his background right away. Mm-hmm. And then he expanded on it. When we meet Jean Valjean, he really doesn't tell us much about him at all. And in fact, going through it, if you already know the story, I, I feel like you have to practice Not seeing it with stuff. new eyes. Because yeah. what's actually going on is um, we're introduced to a convict and we know what he looks like. And we know that he's kind of gruff and we know some basic things about how he presents himself. But 
uh, Hugo allows his character to unfold slowly over time so that we kind of are introduced to him much like the strangers. I think that's a great comment. I noticed that too. I actually think it goes one step further. We don't know that he's a convict when we first see him. We just know that he's a guy from out of town. And our suspicions about him grow along with the people in the town. Until on page 62, um, the, I think it's the innkeeper, comes to him and says, I have no room for you. And we wonder why as much as the traveler does. He says, what? What are you talking about? You're going to give me food. But he says, I have no room for you. And he says, well, put me in the stable. I can't. Why? We're standing with Jean Valjean at that point as the reader, still confused about what's going on. Until the bottom of the page, the innkeeper says, stop, enough of this. Shall I tell you your name? Your name is Jean Valjean. Now shall I tell you who you are? I think it's amazing that we learn who Jean Valjean is as this innkeeper says, shall I tell you who you are? No one can give you an identity that way, but that's how we encounter his his person in the story which i think is really thematically rich yeah i love that the fact i hadn't caught that that the innkeeper is saying i'm going to tell you who you are instead of jean valjean getting to be in charge of who he is or getting to express who he is or some kind of omniscient narrator who takes the the voice of god you know and says let me tell you the intimate secrets which hugo is going to have no trouble doing here in just a couple of pages of course but he doesn't present the character to us that way so we feel Mm -hmm. i mean i felt wronged for Jean Valjean when that's what the innkeeper says to him. Shall I tell you who you are? And I thought, how dare you? No one gets to do that except Mm. God, you know? But that's why Jean Valjean is the way he is. This is the the posture that the world has taken towards him from the very beginning. I was immediately on his side. It's also so clearly Christological imagery. Oh yeah. Uh, With the no room at the end part. Yeah, and I guess I guess it's a little on the nose too, but this is one of the things I was talking about that mm-hmm. he never comes out and says it, but there are several times where I mean, so he's he he's turned away from the inn and unlike the the Christ story, he's not even allowed to stay in the stable. Mm-hmm. Um he is turned away uh, everywhere and even from a kennel. Yeah, even the dogs turn him out. Um even nature, right? There's like mm-hmm. a progression. He tries the really nice inn in town and he doesn't get in there. He tries the, the lesser inn. He doesn't get in there. Um, he tries someone's house and that mm-hmm. doesn't work. He tries the dog kennel and that doesn't work. And then it ends with him looking out into nature. And we're told that nature is uninviting too. Yeah. Um, so there's just... He gets all the way down to the bottom. Mm. When he tells, um, when he finally ends up at Monseigneur Bienvenu's house and he's telling him about this all in a rush, um, trying Mm. to, well, again, trying to be the one to identify himself before someone else is going to give him a label. And he's doing it kind of defensively. He explains his progression out and out of the town and into nature. And he says, the dog bit me and chased me away as if he were the man and I the dog. I went into the fields to sleep under the stars. There were no stars. It looked like rain. And where was the good Lord to stop the drops? So I came back to town. So maybe even a conflation in that moment of the natural world and the face of God. He feels rejected utterly. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that the the innkeeper can't give him a name. And Mm. like you guys were saying, no one gets to do that, right? But... It, it even happens typographically. Yeah. He gives the name Jean Valjean, the innkeeper does. And then Hugo persists in using generic terms, the man, the traveler, yeah. over and over and over again. And the first time his name comes back into the narrative is when he stumbles into the bishop's house and says, I am Jean Valjean. Mm. So there's a sense in which um, for Hugo, he actually does have the power to name himself. Hmm. And it seems like right now that's a power for ill. Right. Because what we're getting out of him is bitterness and an account of all of the wrongs done to him. Right. We're, we're about to enter a discussion of whether those wrongs are real or imagined and to what extent he is responsible for what's happened to him in his life. Um, but one gets the sense that when he says, I am Jean Valjean, he means something different than mm. the bishop will mean when he calls him his brother. Right. Right. There's an identity that he's claiming that is not that's not maybe fully true. What do you guys think about that? 
I think I understand what you mean. Do you mean that he, in naming himself this time, is claiming um, his history defensively Mm -hmm. as an explanation of why he is the way he is? Like, I want to be the first to name myself because I'm a, what I am is a victim. I'm not a convict. Mm -hmm. I'm not someone dangerous to you. I'm a victim. I've been abused. And let me name myself first as like self-defense. Is that what we mean? Yeah, a little bit. And then also it's an accusation of the bishop implicitly, Mm. right? This is how everyone treats me. So it's how you'll treat me too. So let me give you the salient details. Let me give you the things that will allow you to go ahead and reject me. Oh yeah. Because I know that's what you're going to do, right? This textbook arm's length defensiveness from, from someone who's been victimized. Mm. And, um, that is on the one hand, the first time his name comes back into the text in his own mouth. And so the things he says about himself matter to us mm-hmm. as readers, right? Yeah. We should be paying attention when, the, when an author gives their main character the right to speak for themselves. On the other hand, it's a very one-sided picture that he gives. And I just, it seems to me that since the identity of this man is going to be the focus of the section, it's interesting to note that he starts it by saying, here are the ways I'm a victim. And in so doing, here are the ways you're going to reject me. Right. The fact that he doesn't give his name, though, um, while significant in all the ways you're saying, I'm sure, also allows the author to play with a lot of illusions. Mm. Not only, you know, Christ, the Christmas story, but also this is the man, right? Like, this, yeah. this is... Oh, yeah, is like that societally. The baptism? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like... Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean, Christ in that, too, right? Um, when the the guy opens his door... At the, at the little home that he stops by and says, are you the man? Yeah. Right. Like there's a kind of a echo of the Christ story in that as well. I, and like, as you're talking like the, the man of no name, the traveler, like that's mm-hmm. kind of Odyssean in oh, some yeah. ways, sure. the man trying to get home. And, uh, the, our section t- for today opens by ma- drawing a, uh, an explicit comparison with Napoleon. Oh yeah. Um, which is something I did not expect. Uh, we're told that, Uh, The man was entering Digne by the same road that seven months before the Emperor Napoleon had taken from Cannes to Paris. So I I think it's so interesting. And I could see him trying to sustain this over the course of the book, too, right? We know that we're going to get a crazy chapter on Waterloo. Um, The fact that he's drawing this comparison with Napoleon's 100 days in which Napoleon also is coming home to France from an exile. Mm. And is greeted with parades, right? Like he's basically marched triumphantly from the coast into Paris. Uh, and you contrast that with Jean Valjean, who isn't, um, who, who's rejected at every turn. And yet, if you think about the arc of the story, Napoleon only gets that for a hundred days before he's going to be exiled again. Mm. Um, so the, the contrast there I think is interesting and I wonder what he's going to do with that I dig that a lot I do too Hmm. I was thinking as you were talking and maybe this takes it in another direction but when you said um he lacks a name he is the man it reminded me of that big chapter of the image of a drowning man left behind by his ship and how Mm -hmm. the man is supposed to represent the plight of of the poor humanity yeah the plight Mm -hmm. of of the downtrodden humanity left behind by the ship of society that should be responsible for it you know right i don't know i think he's definitely supposed to be an everyman you know right yeah even in his name jean valjean it's a jean like very common french name and then valjean aren't we told that his paternal name is it just means like behold jean (laughs) voila jean jean voila jean It yeah. is I, John. <laughs> um, That's funny. So I, I, re- I, th- I can hear us moving into the description of the society and really the question that I, what I would use to sum up the, the section is to what extent is Jean Valjean responsible for his life mm-hmm. and for what's happened to him? And to what extent is this, this unjust societal structure and the human law responsible? And I want to have that conversation, but that would be skipping over what I found to be one of the most important moments in this whole section, which is as they're sitting to dinner, the way that um, Baptistine records it in what Hugo calls a naive letter, right? She records the conversation between the bishop and Jean Valjean mm-hmm. in a in naive detail. And um, one of the things that the curé says 
I'm just going to read this to you and yeah. see what you guys think. What page? The man paid no attention to anyone. He ate, this is page 78, he ate with the veracity of a starving man. After supper, however, he said, Monsieur Curé, all this is too good for me, but I must say that the wagon drivers who wouldn't let me eat with them live better than you do. Hmm. Between you and me, the remark shocked me just a bit. This is Baptistine speaking, right? My brother answered, but they get more tired than I do. No, replied this man. They just have more money. You're poor, I can see. Perhaps you're not even a curé. Are you only a curé? Ah, if God is just, you deserve to be a curé. Hmm. God is more than just. Oh, yeah. Said my brother. Oh, I got chills. Whew! That's a line. I wrote it in all caps at the very top of the page. God is more hmm. than just. What on earth does that mean? Discuss. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's well, beautiful. Yeah, go ahead, Emily. Nope, go ahead. Well, I just I think... I was literally just saying it's beautiful. <laughs> it is. It's really beautiful. And I think it's, it is, um, well, it's leading us in the direction that he wants to go for the rest of this book, which is a conversation mm-hmm. about justice, a, a fixation with justice uh, being destructive. Not that justice is not important as a virtue in and of itself, but the fixation with the law destroying a life uh, not just from the outside, but from the inside of a man. I think Jean Valjean is obsessed with the law and has identified himself as either a failure or a success based only on his own qualifications. And his relationship to justice. Yeah, his relationship to justice. Yeah. Whether he has been wronged, that's a conversation about justice. Whether he is right. truly deserving of the punishment that he's received, that's a conversation about consequence and justice and, you know, retributive or otherwise this is a conversation about justice even his ideas about god are uh twisted but he says i don't know if this is significant but he says at one point i don't understand men of religion i don't understand men of the cloth because i was denied closeness when they came to us as convicts they were far away we couldn't hear them on page 75, mm. he says, we couldn't see this man too well. He spoke to us, but he wasn't near enough. We didn't understand mm-hmm. him. That's what a bishop is. So yeah. even if someone was going to come and explain that God is more than justice, I think Jean Valjean's answer would be, I couldn't possibly have known that. So you can't judge me based on that. Like, again, a right. fixation with, I am this way and I deserve to be because of justice. It's... Because I don't know. justice. Because justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So for the for the bishop to kick things off by making that um, simple, innocent, direct statement that for me just stands up out of the page and says, I'm the point here, right? God is more than just um, leads us into that section I was talking about a second ago of yeah. the discussion of Jean Valjean's responsibility and the responsibility of the law and the corrupt society. Um, leads us into that with this very personal note because the rest of that conversation, there were a couple of different descriptions of the way he treats him over dinner that had to do with um, what is most compassionate, mm. suggesting that the, the thing that is more than justice about God is his compassion, right? What's the best thing to do f- uh, with a bruise? Not touch it at all. Yeah. Remember that description? Yes, I do. And there's a sense in which the curé was intent on Treating Jean Valjean like any other person. Mm-hmm. Refusing to acknowledge the things that Jean Valjean has made his identity. Refusing to treat him on in the terms that he has decided to, to treat the world with. Yeah, well, even what we were saying about names. He says, before you even told me, I knew your name. And he says, what right. do you mean you knew my name? How do you know my name was Jean Valjean? <laughs> and he says, right. he says, no, no, your name was You knew was my name my was brother. Steve? <laughs> right. You knew my name right. was Steve? Right. <laughs> Like what you're saying, he basically, he says, let's turn your eyes away from your preoccupation with uh, whether you deserve your name or not. Your name is something completely Mm -hmm. other than you've ever considered. And like you said, the basis of it is compassion and the nature of Christ and being a sufferer. You know, it it gives you, you are welcome because you are suffering. God is more than just. Mm. What do you think about that, Emily? I think that's beautiful. I had to go ahead and circle that line. I completely missed it. I did too. It's absolutely the point. I was struck by it. it. This might not be important at all, but I was struck by the little detail we're given before Jean Valjean enters the scene, which is that um, the bishop is busy writing a work on duty, which unfortunately he never completed. <laughs> 
because his duties got in the way. <laughs> yeah, and I just think I think it kind of fits in that there's a there's the letter of the law. There's the like to write that's the theological magnum opus, right? The the words of the bishop. But they're not as significant as the relational aspect yeah. of his life and we see that play out for Jean Valjean as well. And it's as confusing to him as it is to us. I mean, we, we were just talking a second ago about the fact that the bishop is kind of a caricature of holiness yeah. and a caricature of compassion. Um, and, and we all look at it and go, okay. I mean, I can see what you're doing here. Okay, fine. But this isn't realism, right? It's romanticism. Jean Valjean does the same thing. I mean, I think he, it's kind of a gotcha moment mm. between me and Victor Hugo when Jean Valjean is being ushered into his bedroom and he turns to look at the bishop and he basically says, okay, dude, come off it. Yeah, you're right? not like, real. Have you, There's no way. You're not real. You're faking it. Have you thought about the fact that I might be a murderer? How's that mm-hmm. grab you? Right? Mm-hmm. And the bishop just doubles down and I can hear Hugo doubling down also. And I, he, the bishop replies, God will take care of that. So... I guess the question that's that I'm being faced with is, well, do you believe or don't you? Because there's there's really no other options for the bishop. He looks around and says, I believe. So everything about my life has to be in light of that fact. And that's what Jean Valjean is about to be faced with, right? He steals that we, we gotta fast forward through the through the great moment here because we need to we need to talk about the next thing. So right. he he goes ahead and steals the steals the silver. Gets caught promptly, which is true of every time he's tried to run away, right? He gets mm-hmm. caught promptly and drug back before the door. And the bishop, of course, instantly says, hey, you forgot the candlesticks. And those are worth more than all the rest of the silver combined. Um, don't forget to take those. Oh, hey, thanks, guys. Appreciate you bringing this guy back. But there's no problem here. I th- this was all a gift. Facing Jean Valjean with the ultimate proof of his perspective on the world, his charity, his compassion, and his conviction that the Lord will take care of him and his so that he can take care of the Jean Valjeans of the world, right? Mm-hmm. And this faces this faces Valjean with with a critical decision. Um, and I, can, I can't find the spot, but the way that he put it was incredible. Um, he dimly felt that this priest's pardon was the hardest assault, the most formidable attack he'd ever sustained. That his hardness of heart would be complete if it resisted this kindness. That if he yielded, he would have to renounce the hatred with which the acts of other men had for so many years filled his soul, in which he found satisfaction. That this time he must conquer or be conquered, and that the struggle, a gigantic and decisive struggle, had begun between his own wrongs and the goodness of this man. And then on the following page he says, If he were not the best of men, he would be the worst. That he must now, so to speak, climb higher than the bishop or fall lower than the convict. That if he wanted to become good, he must become an angel. That if he wanted to remain evil, he must become a monster. Man, there's just this so much This is the choice he's being faced with. Because also, that is justice at its heart. It's black and white. There is no middle ground. You are either good, all the way good, or you are bad, mm-hmm. all the way bad. And he is being faced with that, but also he's bad all the way bad. What do we do now? You know? Well, it's so, Mm -hmm. that's how the section ends. That's how the section ends. He looks at, at, um, I just think it's fascinating that we don't, we don't end our section with the curé saying, I've bought your soul and given it to God. Go now live well. And, and Jean Valjean is not transformed by that. He's burdened by that. He goes away and there's a, his soul is rocked and he doesn't feel I mean, it's obviously the beginning of the transformation. But after that, he does it wrong. He steals immediately from a little boy who's yeah. sobbing. Like, that is yeah. what changes him. The fact that... I think it's oh, really no, important to notice. Man. Yeah, I think it's really important to notice that this, this, um, this moment that I zoomed to happens in between two important things. The silver is stolen and then given to him as a gift and he's set free and he's bewildered and then we get the narrative of his prison time yeah right and the narrative of his prison time goes down just so that we understand the weight of the burden that he's facing and then we get a discussion of the burden and the choice and while he's reeling in the midst of that decision we get 
Petit Gervais, where he basically he basically steals from this kid out of out of animalistic habit. He's not thinking. He's not paying attention. He's shocked to find that he has done it. Mm-hmm. And there's a line in there where Hugo says, as strange as it may seem, he had done something of which he was no longer capable. Right? Like, his heart has actually been softened. The hardness that was there has been affected by the gift of the bishop. Um, but it hasn't sunk in yet enough to change his habits, to change the way he lives. And so you're right, Megan, like, the end of the section, the verdict is, your heart has been changed uh, in spite of these things that you are currently doing. Well, yeah, and it's almost, I. it's not salvation imagery so much as it is imagery of escape, like a convict getting out of prison. On, on page 111, um, it reads, at first, even before self-examination and reflection, distractedly, like someone trying to escape, he sought the boy to give him his money back. Then, yeah. when he found this was futile, he stopped in despair. At the very moment when he exclaimed, I'm such a miserable man, he saw himself as he was and was already so far separated from himself that he felt he was no more than a phantom and that he had there before him in flesh and bone, stick in hand, a shirt on his back, a knapsack filled with stolen articles on his shoulders, with his set and gloomy face and his thoughts full of abominable projects, the hideous convict Jean Valjean. Mm -hmm. So here he is standing outside himself. As if, mm-hmm. as if something has happened to help him escape his own, the prison of himself. And now he's afraid to ask, I love that. who am I? You know? Yep. Yeah, that's, that's so very good. well put. I think that this might be the most significant instance of the word miserable that we've mm-hmm. seen thus far. And it prob- it's probably always significant given yeah. the title of our story. Right. Uh, but the fact that this is the moment when Jean Valjean looks at himself and says, I am a miserable man. And then this is going to be the story of the miserables, which is, you know, the the suffering, the the poor, right. sometimes even like the the wicked, right? Like the, I don't know, there's a conflation of the lower classes and the crime in the streets of Paris. Oh, yeah. But like here he transcends all of that. And it has nothing to do with his social class. It has nothing to do with um, his status as like a convict uh, before the law. It, when he says, I'm a miserable man, it's it ha- it's almost theological, right? Mm-hmm. The miserable are, it, I don't know that that is like, I don't think anyone can escape that classification now no. in this yeah. story, right? Mm-hmm. Except the bishop who, have we, as we've already established, is the, is the, symbol of another way is the symbol of a different life right and in a little bit farther down on the page that megan was just reading from um in in valjean's conscience there are two men Mm. he himself the miserable convict and the bishop and the bishop gets larger and larger and larger in his mind until he himself is so small by comparison that he disappears and all he can see is the example of this goodness yeah yeah i have two thoughts and they I'll just have to say them one at a time, but they don't go together. <laughs> one is a follow-up <laughs> to Emily's, um, the correlation between Jean Valjean saying that he's miserable and the connection to the whole title. I think he makes it right. explicit on page 112 when he says that Jean Valjean weeps bitterly, more powerless than a woman, more terrified than a child. It harkens mm. back to that, the little preface. prelude to our story. Yeah, the preface. Thank you. Um where he says, here's the problem with a man, here's the problem with a woman, here's the problem with a child in a society like ours. Here, Jean Valjean becomes all three, and he's titled miserable. But the other idea that I don't know if it goes with it, he calls himself a miserable man after um, the bishop pronounces, go now and be an honest man. And Mm -hmm. I think... There's there's something to suss out there, you know, like there's a tension. Yeah. The, or or maybe the one is the result of the other. The truest thing mm. you can say about yourself is I am a miserable man who now will help me. You know, who am I now? Now that we've admitted that. Yeah, I get. Yeah, I guess what I meant by tension there is that uh, the bishop says, go now and be honest. He un- I mean, literally almost without thinking about it, like almost without culpability. Yeah in a reverie steals from this kid yeah, yeah, and his honesty is stolen from him. Right. He was honest from the moment the Bishop forgave him and said, go in peace until the moment he steals from this kid. He lived as an honest man. And I think this goes back to what you're saying about naming though, 
Jean Valjean, whether or not he has the right to name himself. In this moment, he says, I am a miserable man. Right. But the bishop said, you are an honest man. Ooh. So it's, um, and he immediately contradicts that. But then we're left with the, we're still left asking who has the right to name him. Yeah, the bishop says, I've named you for God, right? I've claimed you for God. I name you honest. And... And yet Jean Valjean says, I'm a miserable man. So who's going to get the final word? Hmm. Yeah, I think for me it was, and I didn't want to, I, I was, I'm trying to read Victor Hugo on his own terms. Right. Um, there's obviously some gorgeous theological underpinnings here that we could suss out for days and days and days. But, but I do think he actually is concerned with justice and the, and the mm-hmm. opening poem mm-hmm. or, or meditation at the beginning of the novel makes it really, really clear that he's this part of the, part of the thematic driving force behind this novel is the social justice issues. He is actually concerned with God and a God of justice. Mm. And the Bishop doesn't say, I name you honest. He says, promise me you'll use the silver to become honest. Right. And the Bishop isn't holiness. He isn't given his holiness by a gift. He's given it by dint of long effort and habit. And there it's, um, there is some traditional Christianity going on here when it comes to Hugo's conception of virtue right? I think that the two ideas are twinned together really well in the conversation about whether Jean Valjean is guilty or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about that. So, uh, in, in the section where we're told, um, about Jean Valjean's history and he's meditating on it. Uh, let's see, this is page, uh, 86 chapter seven, the profoundest despair. Uh, He's meditating on whether or not he was wronged. And he says, um, well, first of all, we're told that he wasn't ignorant or he was ignorant, but he was not stupid. Mm -hmm. And misfortune is its own kind of inner light, Mm -hmm. which is kind of an unrelated comment, but I think is beautiful. He says it again later a little differently when he talks about him as a visionary. Mm -hmm. So um, suffering is a kind of education. Right. Um, But it says he acknowledged he had committed an extraordinary and reprehensible act that the loaf might not have been refused him if he had asked for it. And so the first step, which allowed me to take Hugo seriously from a theological perspective, is that he acknowledges that Valjean is guilty, Mm -hmm. um, that he could have done it differently. But then we get the conversation about who... Well, if he was at fault, who else might have been at fault? Mm -hmm. And we get society like pinning him between, uh, he calls it unreasonable carelessness about the fact that he is an industrious man who can't find work. And uh, what's what's the other word he says? Unreasonable carelessness and pitiless care. care. Yeah. That treats him with such cruelty in proportional to his act. Yeah. Careful. Yeah in making sure he pays every cent and more. Yeah. Pityless care, you know? I thought this section was, well, this is probably what I'm just going to hew to over the course of this whole podcast, but the fact that it begins, we get to see all of this about Jean Valjean because he sets himself up as a judge of his own life. Uh, He says he set himself up as a tribunal. He began by haranguing himself. Yep. And then from there... He turns to society. Right. And it's really interesting to me that the last line of defense is turning to God. Himself gets a lot of paragraphs. Society gets yep. lots of paragraphs. God gets a sentence. Did you notice that? Where is it? Where's the sentence? It's so it should be 88 at the bottom. Yeah, 88. He, uh, he, sends, he sentences society to his hatred and makes oh, yeah. it responsible for his fate. And then we get the line, sad to say, after having tried society, which had caused his misfortunes, he tried providence, which created society, and he condemned it as well. Oh, yeah. So he conflates God with society, right? Mm-hmm. God has allowed society, nature right beforehand, has a, um, it's been allowed to treat him so poorly. And he won't stop that, the raindrops. 
Yeah, the way that it's painted, I can see. I can see why he became this way. When he says, a man never feels outraged unless in some respect he's fundamentally right. Jean Valjean yep. felt outraged. I'm with him, 100%. I yeah, would feel outraged agreed. about this. The, the scales are completely weighted against him. I'd be, I'd be so angry with God, I would, you know? Yeah, I think that's really true. Um, it's a compelling, it's so compelling from yeah. both sides of the issue. And the fact that he, um, it, it all makes sense to me now after, mm-hmm. after getting through this first Jean, Jean Valjean section, the fact that he described the Bishop in such minute detail all makes sense to me because it's this profound contrast, two ways of looking at the world that I think are going to be at war with one another as mm-hmm. we encounter a long list of brace yourselves, people, very sad stories right. over the course. Over the course of this novel, brutally sad, heart-wrenching stories. And we're going to have these two options, right? We're going to, on the one hand, we could set ourselves up as tribunal and pass judgment on a God that would allow this. Mm -hmm. Or we could, as the bishop does, say, God will take care of that. This is what makes it so deep, as opposed to just a a screed against the society. I mean, that's certainly going on. He certainly has social concerns, and they're at the forefront. But also, there's there are all the theological elements, and I think that he's not just asking if society is just, but he's asking if God is just. Do we serve a just God who allows the world to suffer in this way? Is the law of God just? Mm. And I wonder, I mean, (laughs) this is not a literary comment, but I wonder if the rain imagery is going to be significant, you know, given the musical. We could (laughs) could probably surmise that it will. Um, okay, so oh, sorry. I'm sorry, Megan. There's, go ahead. I have one more question, and this really is a question. I was reading along and sensed a tiny bit of enlightenment thinking um, slash maybe maybe humanism going on here. Um, on page 89, he says, is "That was there... my next question." Oh, so was well it really? Done. Oh, sorry. Okay. Yes. No, is no, there... it's great. He says, is there not in every human soul? Was there not particularly in Jean Valjean's soul a primitive spark? A divine element, incorruptible in this world and immortal in the next, which can be developed by goodness, kindled, lit up, and made to radiate, and which evil can never entirely extinguish. I just wonder if that is wrapped up in the conversation about the nature of God. Is he saying that that divine spark in man is the image of God, which can never be completely erased, no matter how depraved a man becomes? Or is he saying that there's something, um, well, I don't know. I don't know how to finish my question. Yeah. Let me, I'll throw mine out. Um, what do we do with the fact that on the one hand, we believe that men have immortal souls and that the image of God is present in man. Uh, but also, we don't believe this part. This is the top of page 89. Jean Valjean was not, as we have seen, born evil. Mm. He was still good when he arrived in the prison. There, he condemned society and felt himself becoming wicked. He condemned providence and felt himself becoming impious. So, um, definitely, I hear you. There's some humanism. There's some enlightenment thinking. There's the idea that... It's a little romantic. Yeah, Yeah. man is born good until he's corrupted by his society. But the combination of that romanticism with what sounds to be earnest Christianity from from Victor Hugo is really interesting to me because when we get down to the the second to last paragraph on the same page, we're talking about whether or not he can be, he can be cured. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says a doctor would say no, but at the end he goes, and like Dante at the gate of hell, he would have erased from that existence. The word, the finger of God had nonetheless written on the brow of everyone hope. Mm. So in condemning Jean Valjean as a lost cause, you're trying to do something impossible which is not to eradicate his inner goodness, but to eradicate something that God has written on his forehead, hope. That's actually a different statement from my perspective than the one at the top of the page. I think so too. And so I'm kind of confused. um, How would he define evil? Yeah, how would he define evil? Yeah, maybe evil is hopelessness. If that's the case... Despair. I might be with him. Maybe despair is ultimate evil and human beings are not born despairing. Um, I, this is why I say I want to read Hugo in Hugo's language. I'm not trying to to, to import some theological conversation, you know, uh, that he doesn't want to have. But this is so explicitly theological that I think it's worth talking about. 
Well, it leads me to another theological statement, really. If we're allowed to consider that he's having a theological conversation at the same time as he's talking about societal issues, then what do we do with page 109, where at the top of the page, Jean Valjean uh, is calling after Petit Gervais and can't catch him. And then this is how Hugo says it. Uh, That was his last effort. His knees suddenly bent under him as if an invisible power had suddenly overwhelmed him with the weight of his bad conscience. He fell exhausted onto a large rock, his hands clenched in his hair and his face on his knees and cried out, I'm such a miserable man. Then his heart swelled. He burst into tears. It was the first time he'd wept in 19 years. Um, that feels like it's the last straining of his will to keep the law. Here he's seen, I've been told to be an honest man. Like you were saying, Ian, he's been an honest man since that. And then all of a sudden, in a vision almost, he steals. He's bad. There's no way out. And in that moment, he can't be self-sufficient anymore. He can't justify himself. That seems to be the turning point moment. Well, I think there's some hope. That's right. And that leads up to the section that I read a second ago, right? The the Titanic struggle that had begun and the options before him, which are to be an angel or to be a devil from the pit of hell. There's this justice that's injected back into the scenario for him. But but I think it happens in the context of our character's walk, not necessarily from this bird's eye societal view that, that Hugo begins the novel with, right? This is how the question presents itself to Jean Valjean. And it should Right? Like nothing that we could call conviction has happened yet. And here it is. He's now wrong, period. And goodness looks unattainable and and you know, evil looks impossibly bleak and black for him. And so then we we turn to the next page and Hugo kind of summarizes on one ten, he says, Like an owl seeing the sun suddenly rise, the convict had been dazzled and blinded by virtue. Mm-hmm. And then on the very next line he says, One thing was certain, though he did not suspect it. He was no longer the same man. Yeah. All was changed in him. It was no longer in his power to prevent the bishop from having talked to him and having touched him. <laughs> I love that. Right? Well, yeah, it goes together with It was a strange phenomenon, possible only in his current condition, but the fact is that in stealing this money from the child, he had done a thing of which he was no longer capable. Mm-hmm. So that so it is this um <laughs> it's simul justus et peccator, right? Simultaneously saint and sinner. This has happened, our author assures us. His heart has changed. And yet he sits on this knife's edge, this in, encountering this dilemma. And maybe there's another another pairing. He's he's now to reform. He's now to change his habits and to change the decisions of his heart. And yet, this power from outside of him has forced him to his knees. He doesn't even understand the change that has happened to him. There's the use of the passive voice in that line that you just read. So it's mm-hmm. it's another two things together. His action as a man and this outside force of benevolent question mark, you know, god figure imposing his own structures on this man's life which are gentler Mm -hmm. than his own right that's the that's the thing that makes me so excited to watch hugo develop these ideas is that on the final page of our selection for the day he talks about how he um there's a gentler light shining on his life and his soul it seemed to him that he was looking at satan by the light of paradise in other words he's not the judge anymore exactly yes He's relinquished his position as the leader of the tribunal. Mm-hmm. And so there's hope for him, right? That that the that word that God has written on his forehead is operative all of a sudden. What do you think, Emily? You haven't talked in a minute. I I think that there's a lot of different conversations going on and they're all intertwined really beautifully. It's complex, but that was what I landed on too, that in the end he what's most important is that he sees himself. Well, first of all, he sees himself through his own eyes as mm-hmm. he really is. And um, by one way of looking at himself earlier, he saw that, yes, he'd done a bad thing, but really society, like he was a victim to society. But here he looks at himself and he like sees, he, in fact, like he, he compares himself to Satan, right? He sees yeah. him. It was like looking at Satan through the eyes of paradise. Um, but it's through the eyes of paradise. Like he, 
he's able to, he's given new eyes outside of himself by which he sees himself. And that seems to be the most significant and the most powerful thing going on is that he doesn't look at himself with his own eyes anymore. Yeah. He sees himself through the bishop's eyes. I think you're right. I think that's, that's really, that's really important for us to all understand is that the conflict that's going on is not over whether God will accept him based on his actions. The bishop is God so far, as far as the symbolism of the novel is concerned, right? The bishop represents the attitude of God towards, towards all mankind. And the bishop has already passed his sentence. Forgiven, beloved, free. That's it. And now Jean Valjean is grappling with that verdict and the fact that he doesn't agree actually with that verdict because it doesn't account for two important things. Number one, the wrongs he has suffered. And number two, the evil he has done. And he knows both of those things to be true simultaneously. How on earth could the actual judge say, beloved, forgiven, free? That doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. So when the bishop says God is more than just, he's saying something that I, I, it seems Jean Valjean is going to spend the rest of his life sussing out. I think that's really important to remember because it's... I, I'm tempted. I was just tempted to say like, look, he, he's like, now he knows the truth. Right. Now he's, he's going, going to be better. To go forward. Now he's going to be better. But um, I love what you said. Now the struggle is between like, he hasn't fully accepted the bishop's perspective on himself. The bishop who looked at him even like while he was contemplating stealing the silver and said brother to him, mm-hmm. um, he he can't accept that it still is dependent on himself um, and whether or not he's going to learn his lesson going forward in the story. So I think that is beautiful and, and gives us a path to chart Jean Valjean's story on, right? He hasn't, this isn't a complete arc yet. He still has a journey to go on. Well, I mean, I'm in. How do you guys feel? I just want the violins. I might have to watch the musical again. <laughs> I'd be lying if I said I wasn't listening to it at least once a day. <laughs> uh, well, thank you both for your insights and for walking through such a heady passage. There were so many things to talk about in there. I think we did a pretty good job. You guys are really, really smart. And thank all of you listeners for being with us. This is a joy and a pleasure. And uh, we will see you next time around on How to Eat an Elephant. Two books, three and four for next time. Oh, yeah. Two books, three and four. Also, there is a schedule posted, right? There is, yeah. Go download the schedule. Okay? All right. Do you look at the schedule? Yeah. No. Cool. Nope. (laughs) I don't. (laughs) I just call Emily. (laughs) You guys don't get to call Emily, though. So go download the schedule. And we will see you next time around on How to Eat an Elephant. Bon appetit. Bon Bon appetit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading.